This morning we're in Mark, we're in chapter 12 of Mark, verses 35 through 44. Um, We've been journeying in Mark, right, since last January, Um, and and just a really interesting time because we are um, here in the scripture, and what we're seeing is kind of the culmination of this Passion Week, this, this week of passion that, that Jesus has as he's heading towards the cross, this thing that, that begins um, with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Let's, um, if you've got your Bible opened or turned on, let's look at the text real quick and then we'll work our way back through it. Verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So if we start back over, we look back at the top of the, the text again. Let's, let's remember, let's get some background again. What we've got is we've got Jesus, and we've, we've seen his triumphal entry. And remember, his triumphal entry did not end at Jerusalem. It ended at the temple. He went all the way up and into the temple, He looked around at what was going on in the temple. He saw the corruption that was in the temple. He he saw that that what was supposed to be going on wasn't going on in the manner that it was. The the, the court of the Gentiles, the place where everyone was welcome in the temple, had been, uh, there there were now money changers and tables and people are selling doves and sacrifices and they're they're charging exorbitant amounts of, of money for these things. So Jesus said he went back to Bethany and he went likely to go stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. And um, on his way back into Jerusalem, it says he goes by this fig tree and he goes to see if it has figs. It looked good from a distance, but when he, on closer inspection, when he got up to it, there were no figs on it. And so he cursed the tree. And remember, we talked about that there actually should have been. Um, some fruit on that tree, what's called a braba um, uh, fruit that, that's kind of a, a fruit that comes early in the year when the leaves come. And, and so he curses this tree and says, may you never bear fruit again. And we talked about how that, that correlated with the nation of Israel, that Jesus is actually, he's, he's using this tree as, as, a, as a symbol of, of what he's doing, what he's teaching, and where he's going. He then comes in and he cleanses the temple. He runs everybody out of the temple, it says, out of the the, the courts of the Gentile there where they were selling and trading. He gets angry and he runs the whole lot of them out. 
We see that Jesus then um, answers a bunch of questions, and he's doing a bunch of teaching around that, right? <laughs> and so now Jesus is talking here. It says that he's talking to the scribes. Let's look at Matthew and see what Matthew has to say about this. Matthew, uh, in, in chapter 22, gives the account as he sees it there, and he says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So son of David is a messianic title. If you'll remember back to the story of Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus was screaming out from the side of the road, son of David have mercy on me. It was a proclamation of that I know who you are. You are the Messiah, and I have a need. And, and so he, he yells this out. So, so this is very important, this idea of the son of David. And, and we're given this because um, there's a promise of a king that's going to be descended from David. And this king is going to have a perpetual kingdom, a kingdom that never ends, uh, an everlasting kingdom, it says. As a matter of fact, Matthew, in his genealogy, he, he goes to great pains to make sure that we can see that Jesus' genealogy goes back to David. Because it's very important, because the Scripture, as it has talked about the Messiah that was to come, <coughs> is, is making this point. So, Psalm 89 says this, it says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, so there's this, this prophetic word that is coming that, that goes back to David because God is, is really beginning to show the people of Israel that it's a very defined path, that, 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 that this is going to be a specific person. So part of that thing is that he is going to be um, of the lineage of David. Remember, Joseph, when he went with Mary, they went back to Bethlehem, the house of David, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. And, and for him... His legal adoption of Jesus would have given Jesus his lineage back to David. So, one more real quick. Ezekiel. Oh, Ezekiel 37. Oops, darn it. Let's see if I can go backwards now. Can you go backwards one there for me real quick? Ezekiel 37, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave 
to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived, they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So there's just a lot in this. And remember in the triumphal entry, it, 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 we, we see that it says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And we saw that Jesus came up and he was mounted on a donkey. And that meant that a king that approached a city on a donkey came, came seeking out peace. And then it talks about this idea of the dwelling place will be with their people. I want to push you forward into Revelation, and I want you to see the similarities. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth and the first, uh, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So now Jesus is teaching. And he's teaching the Pharisees and the scribes, and he's teaching now in the temple that he has cleared. He's cleared it of all of the obstruction, all of the, the, um, the, the things that were going on that weren't meant to be going on, the corruption that was in there. And now he's teaching, and he's in particular, he's talking to the scribes, and he's talking to the Pharisees. Now, as we, as we closed out last week, remember there was, a, there was a scribe that asked a question, and he said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, man, that's it. I totally agree with that. I see that in the scripture. And Jesus told him this, you're not far from the kingdom. You're really close. You're getting there. And so, so what we have to understand here is that the Jewish people believe that the Messiah would just be a man. As a matter of fact, they still believe the, the, the Jews... Um, that are still seeking Messiah, still believe that he will simply be a man. Now, in this, in this whole thing, Jesus is beginning to try to teach them that he is more than a man, that he is actually God incarnate. And this is exactly the reason that the Pharisees hate him is because they believe that he is blaspheming by associating himself with God. He's saying things like, the Father and I are working. I and the Father are one. He's making I am statements. He is, he is talking to them um, and saying, I do the things that the Father is doing. I say the things that, that the Father is saying. He is associating himself with God. As a matter of fact, in the triumphal entry, the people around Jesus are associating him with God as they proclaim him to be the Messiah and the Pharisees are like, hey, you need to shut your guys, shut them all down. Tell them to quit talking. And, and, and he says, hey, if they don't talk, the stones themselves will cry out. So let's look at this psalm really quick. And the psalm that we're going to look at is Psalm 110. This is a messianic psalm. All of the Jews 
saw this psalm as being messianic. In other words, this is a prophetic psalm that is talking about the Messiah that is to come. The Jews still believe that this is a messianic psalm. And it says this. It starts out with this very thing that Jesus quotes. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion. Your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And, and so, so Jesus now is quoting from this psalm, this messianic psalm. And this psalm also is the most quoted um, psalm in the New Testament. We see that this is quoted time and time again. In Acts 2, I'm just going to show you a couple here real quick, and then we're going to get on with it. Acts 2, uh, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. This is the sermon that Peter is, is preaching after the resurrection and after the day of Pentecost, whenever the power has come on and the church is birthed and 3,000 come to know Jesus at this point in time, and this is the psalm that he's quoting. This is how impactful, this is how important this is, and this is how much Jesus is trying to get at the Pharisees and the scribes. This is his last formal teaching for them. Now, he's going to continue to quote into this stuff later, but he is formally trying to help them to understand the Scripture for what it really says. In 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the, fa the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed, his death. Ephesians 1 tells us he's put all things under his feet, and he's gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Hebrews 2.8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So, Jesus, again, he is trying to speak to the scribes and to the Pharisees. 
He's seen all of this corruption. He's seen all of the things that are going on. He's seen their pomp and their, their own personal glory, that, they're, that all of the things that they're doing are not for the people. The things that they're doing are, are to ordain the temple and to build themselves up. And he's trying to get through to them and tell them, look, the Messiah is not just a man. He's more than that. As a matter of fact, he begins to use this idea, this whole concept that David said, by the power of the Holy Spirit, therefore it's right, right? He says, the Lord said to my Lord. And in that, Jesus makes this point. He's saying, how can he be his son if he addresses him this way? Because see, no Middle Eastern father would have addressed his son as Lord. You just wouldn't have. And so, so Jesus is telling them, he's saying, look, this very thing is pointing to something much bigger than that, that I'm more than just a son of David. I'm more than just a descendant of David, that I am the son of God. And in being the son of God, not just a son of God, he is the son of God, the, 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 the son of God, the only begotten son of God of the very same essence that he is God incarnate in the flesh. John 20. But these are written. This is, this is how important this is. I mean, listen to the writers here. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Matthew 16, 16, this is Simon's response. It's when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 26, 63, but Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, that's a contrast. Peter's answer is genuine. The Pharisee here, Caiaphas, when he says, tell us you are the son of God, he isn't saying, I'm acknowledging that you're the son of God. He's saying, say it so that we can trap you. Say it so that we can accuse you of blasphemy. See right here, Matthew 26. This was Jesus' response to that. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy, that he has claimed to be God. This is, this is why the Jews turned him over, and, and this is why the Jews justified turning Jesus to the Romans for crucifixion. <clears throat> you see, the right response to who Jesus is, is a recognition of who he truly is. You can't just name him whoever you want him to be. People have tried to say, well, he's a good teacher, or he's a prophet, or he's some sort of an avatar like other Buddha or Muhammad or other people like that. But see, Jesus, he, he personalizes this, and he says, who do you say that I am? And, 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 he's, and he then goes on to tell us that the very basis of his church is made upon this statement. Who do you say that I am? That, that this is the entrance, this is the way into the kingdom is by a right understanding. 
And the cults, they always twist this. The cults always deny the deity of Jesus. If you're a Jehovah Witness, you, you believe that Jesus is simply the archangel Michael. If you're a Mormon, you believe that Jesus is the firstborn spirit baby of God who chose to come here and, and is the only human to ever live a sinless life. But you don't see him and the Father as being one. They, they don't believe in the Trinity the same way. It says that the crowd, this is really bad. It says that they heard him gladly. They, they enjoyed the teaching. They, they thought it was pretty nice. But they didn't fall on their face. And, and, and in a right understanding of, of what he's trying to tell us here, that's really the right response is that they would recognize who they're in the presence of. And, and so now, just like Mark tends to do, Jesus now is going to sandwich this thing in here, right? And he's going to have this, this warning. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And so Jesus now warns them. He's now giving them a very stark warning, like I've told you. I've walked with you. You've heard my teaching and all of these things. And then now this whole thing gets sandwiched into this idea of this widow's offering. And this is a really neat thing because right now you might be going, oh, no, here it comes, right? Here it comes. He's about to give the giving talk, right? Now, now, there are components to giving in this story, but to be honest with you, after really looking at this over, I don't think that this story is as much about giving as what we tend to give it credence for. This story is about injustice. It's what it's about. Listen to this. It says, and, and uh, he sat down opposite of the treasury and watched the people who were putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. So, a couple of takeaways from this. One is this. God sees what others overlook. God saw her in her offering. He saw her in the minimal amount that she had to offer. God saw that. And not only did he see that, but, but it's forever recorded here in God's word what she did. God also overlooks what everybody else sees. Well, all the pomp and the splendor and all of the, the, the big checks and the, you know, watch this as I put my big check in here and all of that stuff. Jesus is giving absolutely no credence to that whatsoever. Jesus is demonstrating to us that, that giving has nothing to do really with a monetary value. Giving has everything to do with your heart before God. You, you see, it's one thing to give money. It's a whole other thing to come and to present yourself and to give yourself. And you see, that's what she has done. Jesus never actually 
points out the actual amount that she gave. Sometimes this is preached like, well, now what everybody needs to do is, you know, you need to just reach down so deep that you just impoverish yourself and, and you need to give out of that and then that would be blessed and that would be good. But I think that the bigger story is this, is this, it says that she gave two copper coins, they're, they're the, the smallest coins that were known in the Jewish currency were the, were the mite or, or, or the, the lepton. And, and it was worth, two of those was worth six minutes of a day's wage. It was literally pennies what she gave. What she gave, it wasn't even like she gave $50 that she could have lived on for that day. What she gave was so minimal, it would have made no difference. It, didn't, it would have made any difference in her day. It was, it was literally like you putting in a dime in, into the offering box today. It's not really going to, it's not really going to, what she put in doesn't make any difference to the temple and it doesn't change anything about the circumstances of her life, you see, because she needed charity. But even though despite that she needed charity, she was a giver. And she came before the Lord with what she had to give because she's offering herself. And if you back up just a little bit into this thing, you see the story that we're really looking at here is the injustice of what she had to bring. She had nothing to bring. That's the whole point. She had nothing to bring. It talks about these scribes who devour widows' houses. What she had 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 been devoured. She had nothing left to give. And, and, and so the, 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 the temple and the priests and the scribes are not operating in the way that God has ordained that we should operate as God's people or God's place of worship. It's not meeting the needs of the widows and orphans, right? James 1, right? Consider pure and undefiled religion. If you want to be religious, God has a great recipe for you. It's this, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of, of, of our God is this, the care of widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. They did neither. They did neither. They, they allowed their position to puff them up and to make them prideful. You see, this is a whole thing. This is a whole picture of all of this stuff that's going on, this picture of the, of, of the tree being cursed. John the Baptist saying that the, that the axe is laid to the root, that this thing is about to get cut down so that it will make room for something that's fruitful. It's about the cleansing of the temple. It's about the, the corruption that was going on in the temple. This is about the reality that the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious elite of the day were consumers and they should have been givers. It, it, it's about, it's about a, a, a parable that Jesus told about a, that points to a vineyard in which there was no fruit. It points to these questions that were just meant to trap, that weren't honest questions about knowing. They were just meant to trap Jesus. But remember, Jesus is telling this guy here, you're right on the cusp of it. You're really close. You get what the most important things are. Now you need to know who I really am. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes had consumed it for themselves to display their pomp and their splendor and their glory. The temple treasuries were being used to purchase more gold to decorate the temple. 
when they should have been meeting the needs of the widow. Because you see, this widow is much more beautiful to Jesus than temple than a temple that's adorned with gold. So this whole culmination and this whole thing, I, I, it's just this amazing thing that Jesus continues to reach out to these people, us people, who can be really hard-headed, right? Who can get it all wrong, who can be struggling, who can be caught up in the things of this world, who believe that somehow that there's permanence in this world instead of living like we're called to live, which is that there's, there's, there's more beyond this. Again, as Ecclesiastes, the very book of Ecclesiastes, uses the concept of death as a tutor in our lives to teach us if that's the reality of our lives, if we're all going to die, then how should that fundamentally change the way that I live today? If I'm living solely for, the, for, a, for an economy that's underneath the sun, that's meaningless because this is all going to go away one day. But if I do recognize that there's, an, there's a higher economy, that there's actually an economy above the sun. And this is the place where meaning and purpose and God's blessing really flows, not just in our lives, but into the lives of others as well, to truly become kingdom-oriented people, to become a people who love God's church, who serve in God's church, who give within God's church. Why? So that the church can be to the world what it's called to be a place of hope, a place of light, a place of understanding, a place where people can come in and start to understand who the reality of this Jesus is. See, the world's got all kinds of contorted, twisted ideas and views of who Jesus is. They've, they've minimized the reality of, of the gospel and what, what God has come to do. They, they, don't, we don't under, they don't understand it. Sometimes we don't even understand it. I think that we need to like reteach the gospel to ourselves till it really soaks in, till it moves us, till it moves us out and into the world to recognize that, that, that we're called to, to make a difference, that we're called to, to make sure that, that there aren't people out there. See, we'll never eradicate poverty. Jesus told us this, the, the poor will be with you always. But you know what? There's, being poor isn't a bad thing. I grew up pretty poor, and that's not, that's not a bad thing. But there are levels to poverty, and there are depths to poverty. And we can be a people who lift the bottom out of it a little bit and make it just a little bit different experience. So now this is it. This is, this is kind of the place where, where um, everything is really shifting in, in Jesus' Passion Week He's backing off now from this place, from speaking into the, the religious elite of the day. And um, he's going to give some more lessons. And, we're, you know, next week we're going to talk about, about the, the, how we're going to know when it's the end. That's an exciting one right now, right? Because we're all like, wow, look pretty crazy out there in the world. But no matter what's going on in our world, no matter what's going on in this church, our mission doesn't change. It's the beauty of, of, of the way God has set this up. You and I are called to make disciples. That, that's, that's the calling on our lives. The calling on the, of the church is to replicate itself, to multiply itself through discipleship. 
that we would take our own lives, we would take what we learn, and we would be, A, growing in this, in this walk and in our depth of relationship to Jesus, and then we would be taking somebody with us. And so, that's going to be our focus. That's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on discipleship, on being disciples and discipling others, because this is God's recipe for how the church grows. And this is God's recipe for in the midst of whatever in the heck is going on. You just keep your focus. You keep making disciples. You keep moving forward because God is not nostalgic. God is not looking backwards into the better days. He's looking forward into the days that are come. Let's make sure that we're a church body that's going with him. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. We ask you, Lord, to to just... Help us that we would really examine our own hearts and as we move into communion, that, that Lord, we would, we would take a minute, we would just meet with you and we would be real and just allowing your spirit to, to, to bring to mind anything, the things that we need to, to look at, the, the forgiveness we need to offer, the bitterness we need to, to, to put aside. Help us, Lord, to, to focus on you and who you are. Help us to to look to you and help us to be just mindful that that you're always moving forward and that you are faithful and true and that when everything that seems to be falling apart in our world, that's the very time, so many times, that you're moving mightily in our own lives, that you're rebuilding and that you are, are taking the times of struggle and you're creating something in us that wasn't there before, that you're refining us, that you're pruning us, and that you have a purpose in your pruning. It's that we would bear more fruit. So, Lord, as we just look to you this day and in the days to come, we just recognize that it's all you, that, that in us and of ourselves, that, that there's really no good thing in us. There's no good thing in me. The only good thing in me is you, Lord. And so we're grateful that you've come, that you've come for us and that you've come to, to deliver us into eternal life. Not because we were good, but because you're good. And so, Lord, we just uh, we give ourselves, just as the, the widow came, and what she really had to offer almost really amounted to basically nothing, but she came, and she offered herself. And, and she went through, she was faithful to do with what she had to do with. And you honored that, Lord. May we be the same people. May we just be faithful to the things that you've put before us. That's, and, and, Lord, may we just give our hearts to you, and we ask it in Jesus' name.